0: Out the book of Amos in your black pew Bibles. That's page seven sixty eight, seven sixty eight. If you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to take that Bible home with you. Two announcements about the book of Amos. Number one, uh, this sermon is going to be a short sermon. I'm sorry, I hate to disappoint. Uh, number two is next week is going to be our last week in the book of Amos Uh, but if you notice there's still chapters seven eight and nine left in the book we're going to be going through three chapters next week so I would encourage you guys to uh, study chapters seven eight and nine perhaps in your private times this week uh, and prepare to enter into what I think is probably going to be a little bit of a longer sermon, but not too bad, but it's going to be kind of dense. But I think, I think it's best if we just do it all in one pop, so study that on your own uh, this week. And then after that, we're going to be jumping into the book of Hebrews. We're going to take a guided tour through the book of Hebrews, okay? It's a very, very good book, very important book for us to understand, yet it's a long book and it's a difficult book. And so, our goal with that is going to be to just help everyone in this church have a basic understanding of the book of Hebrews so that you can profit from it in your own reading and in your own life. Okay, I've got three points for you in this morning's sermon, which is uh, in Amos chapter 6. Three points. Point number one Israel's preeminence. Israel's preeminence. Point number two Israel's security. And then point number three, Israel's comfort. So let's, uh, let's read the text together, and then we will dive in. I guess I need my Bible out too, huh? Okay. Uh, by the way, we're about to read a long chunk of scripture, and one of the things that I was noticing, I, I was just thinking about just now during our service, uh, is just how much of a word-centered church this is, and I'm just so incredibly thankful for it. If you're in our Sunday school class, uh, which Will taught this morning, an excellent class on sanctification and the glory of God, it was, just, it was just nothing but scripture, just soaked in scripture. If you look in our services from beginning to end, it's just scripture. When we preach, we're just trying to do nothing else but look at the word of God. And, and there's just an unashamedness of, about uh, just being rooted in God's word in the life of our church. Uh, we certainly don't have it all figured out, but I think as long as we maintain that, uh, we're going to be on pretty level ground. Amen? Okay, let me start reading from Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster, and bring near the seat of violence, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves, themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. In it, And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial... Shall take him up to bring the, the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is, in, who is in the inner much of the house, Is there anyone still with you? He say, No, no. And he shall say, Silence. We, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord command the man that the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. bits. Do horses run rocks? Does one plow there, there there with oxen? You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness in the wormwood. You who re- re- rejoice in Lodebar, de- who say, have we not by our own, own strength captured carnine for ourselves? For behold, I will-, will raise up against you a nation, the house of Israel, declares the-, the Lord. And they shall oppress you from lebo Lebo-hamma to-, to, the- to the brook of the Arabah. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Point number one, Israel's preeminence. Isn't it true that all of us in some way want some little kingdom to rule over? We want a place where we can can occupy the seat of preeminence. Many of us view our homes in this way, right? If, if nothing else, if, if not on a job, if not, a, not anywhere else, my home is my castle and I am the king. The king. If you're the wife, I am the queen. This is our place of, of comfort, right? Many of us spend our entire lives pursuing hobbies or careers, trying to establish our own little corner, our own kingdom, where we are the absolute best, where we, we rule, where we are preeminent. And, and this is not an impulse that we merely feel as individuals. We feel this impulse collectively as well, oftentimes along ethnic lines, along social lines, along na- national lines, you know. We're number one. We're number one. That sort of, sort of thing. And, and there's nothing quite like the feeling that we've, we've actually achieved that desire, right? Like, like we are actually the best. We are actually first. You know, you know, you think about first place medals and, and big old first place trophies. Nobody cares about the little, the, the fake gold emblems or the, the, the trophies that they put in the garage somewhere. What they care about is what those trophies signify, which is, I'm the best. I am first. I am preeminent. When somebody act- actually achieves this in life, uh, sometimes it become difficult to be around, to be around right? What, what should begin as, you know, a sort of thankfulness, uh, uh, maybe even like, like a, an unsinful just pride of accomplishment, like that I was able to work, work so hard to do this, can often turn into to, to pride, which makes people uh, insufferable to be around. The guy who's a winner, and he's arrogant because he's the best, and he know, knows that he's the best. Now the only thing worse than, than being around a guy who's the be- best and who sees the best and is therefore arrogant is being, being the guy who acts he's the best but who's not very good at all. The guy who pokes his chest out and you don't really know what he's got to be so pr- proud of. You usually see this sort of thing in like uh, underground or amateur sporting events. You know, there's, there's a guy standing on the first place podium and he's got his chest poked out as far as his ribcage. Cage will allow, and his chin is held so so high that head might roll off the back of shoulders. Um, but you know, he also be standing on a podium in the back of a high school gymnasium in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, and he may be the best, all right. But he's the best in the in, the tea, in his particular age division, in his particular particular class. Out of only three competitors who showed up that day for a relatively obscure sport that no one cares about. You know, not exactly something to be over the hill proud of. And this kind of pride—first place in the fifty to fifty fifty-five a division of the Clark County T.C. Wrestling Tournament—kind of pride. This is the hubris that I think we see on display with the nation of Israel in today's text. They have their chest poked out, their head held high, and there's no real reason for it. And so, Amos's woe oral over Israel stands in sharp contrast. To their pride. Now, look at v- verse one, and you'll see exactly uh, the, the people in the, na- in the nation of Israel who have this kind of pride. It, it says that if you go down, down, down about halfway through the verse, it says, the most no- notable men of the, the first of the nations. Right? So, so here uh, we see that uh, Amos is not addressing the, the entire nation now, he's addressing the most notable men, men and by the way if you go, go back at the beginning of verse 1 you'll see he, he addresses both Zion and Samaria Zion is Judah and in the south Samaria is in the north so he's been, been primarily focusing on Samaria the book of Amos uh, I don't really know, know why shifts the focus back to both nations here there's there's I, 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 I thought about it a lot couldn't really find a good answer but he is in some way shifting, shifting the focus now, back to Judah and to the north but he, he's not addressing everyone in the nation. He's addressing the most notable men. And, and, and those are the people who have the clout, the social c- capital. These would be the judges. This would be the king, the members of the, the king's court and council, prominent military and business and community leaders. So basically, all the wealthy and influential people in Israel. This is who Amos is talking about in this morning's text. Now, he goes on to say, to say that they're the most notable men in, quote, the first of the, na- the nations, end quote. The first of the nations. Now, some commentators, when they look at that, quote, uh, and that, that little uh, that, that, that title there, the first of the na- nations, think that maybe Amos is just addre- addressing them as God's elect, God's chosen people. You know, they are the first of the, na- the nations in that sense. But I think what we see here is more of the sarcasm that we saw from Amos earlier in chapters 2 and chapter 3. And I'm going to tell you why I get that. If you look at, look at verse 2, he says, pass over to Karnal and see, and from there go Hamath the Great, and then go down to the Philistines. The, 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 the Are you better than these kingdoms? And, and the answer to that is supposed to be a very obvious. No, you're not <laughing> any better than these kingdoms, right? And so I, th- I think Israel has, in, in their own mind, this perceived Preeminence, And from God's perspective, it's laughable. Because God can see outside of these four walls of Israel. He sees even, even just the few nations around Israel. And he goes, hey, 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 I, I get it. You think you're number one. But look at these other nations. Do you think that you're better than them? So I think first of the nations comment is me is, is, is a, 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 a cut, a barb, a, a loving note of sarcasm directed towards the leading men of Israel that's meant to, 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 to pride and increase their humility. Now, this delusion of self-importance, it's not unique to the nation of Israel. If you'll if you, if you remember, one of the main things that we see, see as we study the, the Old Testament, as we study the, the nation of Israel, and you've seen it, and we've been through several Old Testament, Testament books over there since I've been pre- preaching in this church, is that over and over again, Israel just can not get it right. You know, they just, they follow the Lord forgives them, raises them back up, and then they fall again. And, and every time we see that, we, we understand Israel is a kind of representative of us, right? And that kind of, kind of a picture, picture of who we are as we try to follow God. And, and so I think it's natural to, to see in what's happening here with these most notable men in this first of the nations, a reflection of what we can tend to feel, feel in our own hearts as we have these feelings of preeminence. But not, not just as individuals, we can also feel this corporately as as a church, especially the church in America, especially the church, yeah, especially the church Church in America. I was gonna say something else. Filter, Kenan, here we go. Uh, I wonder how often uh, we as Western cr- Christians, especially as Christians in America, feel like the kingdom of heaven j- just can't get by without us. We feel like the kingdom will not come to fruition unless the church in America brings it to fruition. We well, feel like the Great Commission can't be accomplished unless church in America is leading the way, wa- waving the banner high. Now, consider just, just for a moment how much God has done outside of American scenarios, outside of American churches, outside of the resources that we have in America. Think about just in church history. Every major Doctrinal development and defense of the gospel, except for the b- battle of ancient has basically taken place off of American soil. Right? You think about the Reformation, probably the greatest single recovery of the gospel in the history of the church. That happened all over Europe. And not one single nation can even claim the pride of preeminence in that when you study the Reformation, one of the cool things that you find is it's not just Luther named something to door on a church in Germany. You see that several things are happening at the same time. Without t- talking to each other, Luther in Germany and Zwingli in Switzerland and come to the same exact conclusions. I think one of the reasons why God designed that way, that way is so that no particular sect of his people could claim that they were the progenitors of Reformation, so that they could not pl- pl- claim prominence. When you think about things like the doctrine of, of the Trinity, you have to remember that it was largely championed and defended by two African church fathers, one of whom uh, uh, I, think it's, I think, think it's not historically accurate, but has come to be known as the Black Dorf, Dorf Athanasius. He was, uh, a theologian from uh, Ethiopia. Brothers and sisters, you should know that the doctrine of Trinity might well be lost if it was not that African church brother. Then you have our Christological creeds, Right? the Athanasian creed and the creed of Chalcedon, you should know that all those creeds, they were formulated in what is modern-day Turkey. Even in our own present day, when we think about the work of God in the life of his people, the church, we can think about the fact that Iran is the nation with the fastest-growing Christian population. The the, the fastest-growing in Iran. China is the nation with the largest population of Christians in the world. The greatest demographic of Christian believers across the globe is women of color, be they Indian, African, or some variation of Latina. South Korea is about to pass the United States in mission sending efforts. All that to say, in the American church, we can tend to see ourselves as preeminent in it on the world's religious stage. And perhaps we were, we were for a time. And if it's true, praise God. I'm happy that he used us as much as he, he used us when he used us. But if that's changing, it's also okay. Because we're not interested in being preeminent in a Great Commission drama. We're just interested in a Great Commission drama being played out according to God, God's glory and for the good of his elect in the nations. Whether we're first place, leading charge of lot, or whether or not we have to fall back and let somebody else take the front li- lines. Has the Lord used us? I'm certain that he has. Will he continue to use us? I'm certain that he will. But if we come to see ourselves as preeminent people, we may find ourselves in a position, and I think we have, if I'm being honest, as, a, as American Christians, where our chin is held high and our chest poked out in a way that perhaps the Lord is not very happy with. Because if you look here, look at look back at verse 8. It says, Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord the God of hosts, I, I abhor... The bride of Jacob. It's not God is like, oh man, look at look at Jacob. They, they you, you know, Israel started to think that they're a little bit more important than they than they really are. Ah, uh, you know, that can happen. No biggie. No, God, God says that He hates it, brothers and sisters. We want we want to avoid anything God, God hates. One of the ways that we can do that is just to be, be, be humble and recognize that God, God, according to His Spirit, works according to His purposes, all, all across the globe and all the different kinds of people, men and women, black and white, young and old, rich, rich and poor. You see this reflected, I hope, every week in our pastoral prayer. We pray for other churches, even other churches locally, because we understand that we're not preeminent in this city. You know? All right. Now, uh, look at verse 7. Go back to verse 7. It says, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. (laughs) God God says, okay, you want to be first? You you, want to be first? Okay, well, guess guess what? You're going to be the first to go into exile. Uh, One Southern American philosopher has, has said that if you ain't first, you're last. Now, Listen. The truth is, is, is that everyone who desires to be first will be last. That is the counterintuitive nature of God's kingdom. Right? We all remember Jesus' words, those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be f- first. Whatever it is in us that makes, makes us want to be the most prominent, the best, the first, first some of that, almost all of it, is is an unhealthy pride. It's sinful ambition. John deals with this in his third letter to his beloved children. That's the ch- church. he, does, he mentions the name Diotrephes? Listen to what John says about Diotrephes in Third John One. And he says, "I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, the translation says, "who loves to be first, does not acknowledge our authority." So basically, God says, listen, I'm telling you something that's going to give you life. I'm writing to you. I have, have, have something to communicate to you. It's very important. But one of, the, one of the reasons why you may not hear it is because there's somebody in your midst who loves to be first, and because of his desire to be first, he's going to keep the truth away from you. Simple application here, friends. Don't be like diatrophies. Di- if, and if you do want to stri- strive to be first, if you do desire to be preeminent, strive to be, be, be first in right way. Strive to be first in loving your neighbor. Strive to be first serving your local church. You know, I, I was watching this, this thing on the University of Texas, and, and uh, it says that they have, have this motto, come early, cheer loudly, and stay late, you know? That should be our motto as a church. Come early, spend time, talk with people, build, serve for Sing loudly while you're here. Talk a lot with your brothers and sisters. And then, then, then stay late and continue the same, same thing. Be on the lookout. Strive to, to see how you can remember your, your brothers and sisters. Try to be the first, first in in your marriage. You know, I very much, much, much value pre- counseling. And, and uh, I, I have no problem sitting down with marriage. I'm like, let's do issues. You know, me and my wife sit down, sit down with the car- Helps work through, through our issues. But almost all of that would be unnecessary if each person in marriage said, I will be preeminent in giving up my rights to serve you. Strive to be the first to repent, the first to love, the first to forgive. Strive to be preeminent in giving. Strive for preeminence in holiness, in love, peace, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. You go back to verse 6 you'll see that God says, says that the people who drink wine in bowls, it says that they love, they love to anoint themselves with the finest oil, oils. Now, that finest word, there, that's a translation that's supposed to help us make sense of it in English. In Hebrew, it's kind of clunky. But in Hebrew, it literally says, with first of oils. Right. So if you're reading this in Hebrew, what you're going to notice is a lot of first, first. First, first, Israel loves to be first. They want to be first. Even when it comes to their, you know, uh, their luxurious accoutrements, that they have the first. They're not going to settle for the second or the third. You know, they're not going to no, no die at mountain lightning, okay? They want name brands and stuff. they the finest of the oils. And this is the exact opposite of what the Lord Jesus role, role modeled for us. He was here walking this earth. Jesus was preeminent. He became as one who was despised and rejected. Jesus was the first, and he became the last in order to, to save us. Je- Jesus was the greatest, but he became the least. He was a king, but he died like a slave. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, this should be our mindset. This, this is how we should stri- strive to live. Don't be like the Israelites who, who want to be first. Be like Jesus who was first and sacrificed his freedoms. Listen to what he says. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, God something to be asked, but empty himself, taking the, f- in the form of a serpent, being made human likeness, and being found in an appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on cross. This is the mindset that we should have in ourselves, brothers and sisters. You can't be preeminent when you're hanging hanging there on a cross. You can't be be preeminent in your marriage if you're the one who's always, always rushing to repent. You can't be preeminent in the church if you're always trying, trying to give glory and, glory and honor to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't be financially preeminent in this land if you're constantly giving of your treasures to make sure, sure that you have treasures in heaven and your brothers and sisters here on earth are well supplied and cared for that the gospel ministry carries on in the life of the church. And, and then there comes a promise from these verses in Philippians. Because if you can manage this, if you can fight the flesh, if you can, you can do what honestly, none of us are built to do, but by God's spirit we will have the ability to, by his grace and his help, if you can do this, this is the promise that you have. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place and gave him the name of all names. And brothers and sisters, if we are found in Christ, then we will be exalted with him. We will reign with him. We will have the name above all names. them. Point two. Israel's security. Israel's security. Uh, I think we all know who Elon Musk is, right? The techno genius who founded Tesla. And uh, yeah, he's 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 pretty out there, okay. So um, T- Tesla recently held, a, held a, a press conference where they're going to show off their new Tesla truck, right? And truck is supposed to be amazing because on the one hand it gets like nine million miles per electronic gallon, whatever that is. Okay, okay. Then also it basically built like a tank, right? Right? I mean, it's supposed to be indestructible. And in order to demonstrate that, the lead design and engineer in this press conference he takes a massive ball. He walks up to the driver's side window up and says, watch this. And he chunks the ball all at the window. Now, it was supposed to show just how strong those windows were. When the steel ball hits the window and bounces off, the window's fine. And then the ball hits the grenade. Ooh, ah, it is a tank. Wow. Fortunately, what happened is that window shattered. <laughs> he picks the ball up and throws it again. And the same thing happens. Part of me wonders if this is not, not just some viral marketing scheme conjured up in Elon Musk's mind. But if, if it's not that, if, if they really expected this to work, uh, I think that what we'll see here is a false sense, sense of confidence, right? I mean, if that guy really thought that that steel ball ball was going to pass off of that window, if he was really confident that that, that, that going happen in there and in, in front of the whole world, he must have been sorely, sorely disappointed that window bro- broke. Now, this, this false sense, sense of security, it can really happen to anyone. Anyone like, anyone like Blaine? So let me tell you guys. When I first got to the church, one Blaine was, was uh, running around up there and he climbed over over the edge of the balcony. And I, I said, oh, Blaine, get down. I don't want you to die. And, I, and actually, I said, jump, 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 jump. OK. And he was like, dude, I can jump off, off of this. And I like, you, you can't. He's like, dude, I've done this like a thousand times in this church. And OK, they do it. And listen, the love of confidence in Blaine's eyes, it's just, he's done it a million times, right? And, and then he jumps off and he broke his ankle. Landed wrong. Well did not break it. But. Slightly hurt. Yeah. Slightly very hurt. But okay. it's never that. Hence the confidence. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And you know, this can happen to us as visuals, and just like in point one, it can also happen to us corporately. Happen to entire nations. Entire nations can live with this sense of sense of confidence that really is it's not rooted in reality. You know, you think about the British, they, they thought, sure, us Americans, were not going to be able to put them off in the Revolutionary War. You think about the United States, they thought, we a problem, go over to Vietnam, a bunch of rice farmers, boom, it's going to quick and easy. You think about the Soviet Union, they thought, thought, thought that they were going to take over those boat riding, turban wearing people on the, the hills of Afghanistan with, with no problem. And in each one of these in, in instances, an entire nation was proven to be falsely confident. False insecurity. Now, the nation of Israel is supposed to feel like they are in a good place of security in the days of Amos. Look at verse 1 again. It says, What are those who are at ease in Zion? And so that feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. That, that ease in the first part of verse 1 and secure is meant to, con- to connote this idea, right? You think about Jesus asleep in the boat during the storm, right? He was at ease. And everyone's like, why is he so at ease? His disciples were like, we're going to die, right? They, they didn't feel secure. But apparently, Jesus felt secure enough enough to be at ease, so at ease that he could go to sleep in the boat. Now, leaders of Israel feel very secure. But this, this cry of woe from the prophet of Amos, it stands in stark contrast to their confidence and to their security. Look at, look, look at verse 3. Because they're so confident, because they're so at ease, they do, verse 3 says they do, it's, oh you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near, near the seat of violence. they far away the, the day of disaster. They think, listen, nothing bad is gonna happen to us. And if it does happen, it's not gonna happen in our lifetime. It's really far away. Because of that, the second half of that verse says that they bring near the day of violence. So what you see here is, is an illustration of contrast. If you push away the sense of judgment, what you're naturally going to do is bring near a, a sense of sin. You're, you're going to be quick to practice injustice. It's going to be easy for you to live in sin and unrighteousness because you think nobody's going to do anything about it. Right? We're doing fine. If it's not broke, we'll fix it. Now, this is how we all operate if we're left, left to our own vices. We feel comfortable in sin and unrighteousness, and we feel like j- judgment is out there. And we don't feel like it's, near, it's nearer. Children and adults alike feel at ease within with just with sin. And as long as it seems like there won't be any reckoning for that. Sin. This is the reason why people feel so comfortable living in, in debt. Right? I mean, the basic logic of money says if I don't have any, and I get things, one day I'm going I'm to have to pay back or declare bankruptcy ruin my financial future, right? But, but, but the way our debt system works in America, we feel like the day of reckoning is all far away, you know? I mean, one of the reasons why you have to just do these minimum minimum payments on your credit card is because it's supposed to feed this, this uh, feeling, which is really just a deception, that, yeah, yeah, I can pay off later, much, much later, years in the future, as long as I pay that fourteen dollars to keep them off my back. The day of that debt is always out there. What that brings near is foolish spending in the present. Uh, I think one of the main reasons why God has ordained this estate as a means of justice is to help uh, kill this reality in our hearts. It's meant to act this feeling that we all sort of naturally live with because we're deceased in sin. So in Romans 13, Paul says that God has, has given the sword. it's a symbol of justice, to the state, state uh, to, to carry out his purposes. He says this, Rulers do not do not the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. So the day of destruction, that's what they bring. They, they bring the day of destruction on those who sin. Right. I think that what we see hap- happening here, at least one reason why God does this is that at every state, of state you state uses the sword to bring justice, it's a reminder to us, a small reminder to us that the day of justice is never far from us. It's not, it's not as far as teams. Now this, you see, I'm talking about at the state level, but I think it's also true on a much smaller scale. You think about our families. Mom, dad, one of the reasons that you're called to discipline your cho- children, I think, is, is to help them not forget that the day, day of injustice... Oh, so somebody's about to be done right now. <laughs> Let's just stop and observe the cuteness. Go- golly. All right. Lashes is he going to get for that? One of the reasons that we uh, discipline our children is because we don't want them. The to live feeling like the day of disaster is never going to come. We we want to give them these tiny reminders that you can't sin sin, sin, and and get away with it ever. Okay, let's look back at verse two. Go back to verse two with me. Pass over to Calna and see from there, there, go to Hamath the Great, then go down Gath of the Philistines. And then he asks, are you better than the kingdoms or is their territory than their territory? Here we see see Amos, Israel, who do you think you are? Who who do you think you are? Listen, listen, each of these cities was at one point more more powerful than Israel. But in the days of Amos, historians tell us that each of these cities was in some way under the control or under the the, the influence of Israel. Israel had become so prosperous that these states that at one time were a threat to them are now some way under their control. And God, God is saying, listen, if it could happen to them, it could happen to you. You should not feel, feel so secure. Let me get like a racetrack put in here or something. If it can happen to them, it happened to you, so you shouldn't feel so secure. I have felt this exact, exact same thing happen in my life, in my walk with Jesus. I remember the first time I had the Christian here. You know, I didn't, I wasn't a member, a member of a local church where I was discipled well, so I was kind of just a discipled. Uh, at a distance, which is really no discipleship at all, uh, uh, by this guy, and uh, man, I really looked up to him. He, he, he was just, to me, he, he was like, okay, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then he had an affair. You know, he, he uh, cheated on his, on his, doing well now. He's repented. There's reconciliation. Things are well. I, I believe he's probably still gonna be closer, closer to Jesus in heaven than, than I will be. But uh, I used to look at him, and I used to think, this guy could never fall into sin. Man. And then when he did, it made me start thinking about myself. You know? Because I remember thinking, I would never cheat on my wife. I could never adultery. You know, that's, that's just, just in the realm of impossibility. Yeah, maybe I could tell a white lie. Maybe I, I, I could, you know, maybe I could like do something weird on my taxes, but I could never do that. And when I saw, I saw it happen to him, I thought, oh, no, no, no. I think I'm living with a, f- a false insecurity. I think it could happen to me. And that changed the way I started approaching my marriage. It changed the way I prayed for my ma- marriage. You know, it used to be like, Lord, help those people with their bad marriages. Then it was like, Lord, protect me. Please protect my marriage. I remember feeling so secure. The reality is, is that Satan can come in and attack me in 10,000 different ways to destroy marriage. So please, Lord, keep my marriage safe and intact. Now, living a Christian life, it's all about a very fine sense of balance. You know, on the one hand, I want, I want every Christian in this room to feel a deep-seated assurance that if you are in Christ, that, that you can never lose your salvation. I want, you, I want you to feel confident that the Lord Jesus Christ will take you all the way, all the way home. On the other hand, I think, I think we can feel too confident. We have to remember that there is a scripture that literally says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, don't feel too confident. For it, it is the Lord who works in you according to his good purposes and pleasure. So, we, we see that balance there in, in one verse, right? You need to, on the one hand, have a sense of trepidation about, about your soul, have a sense of fear. On the other hand, you need, you need to have a deep, to trust that Jesus is going to take you home. That kind of balance that we need to live this Christian life. Yes, 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 we should secure. And that should, I think that should be the base foundation feeling that we have. But if we lose a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety about the reality of sin, about the deceitfulness of our flesh, about the pressures of this world, I think we will find ourselves just like Israel in the days of Amos. Even when you think about it on a more macro level. We think seminaries will never fall into sin. We think churches will succumb to heresy. We think denominations are completely fortified against the forces of evil. Now, I'm not saying we need to live our lives constantly cowering in fear, but I am saying that we must remember that, that our forces are not as strong as we often think they are. Do you remember when we were in the, in the Lord where we saw the final petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil? Jesus teaches us six th- things to pray, and the last thing he, he teaches us to pray is to remember that we are not that, that, that strong. L- Lord, please help us. Please keep me far away from temptation. Please rescue me when I do fall, when I fail, and when I land in evil. Please, Lord, be my strength. Be my security. The people of Israel will soon find out that their sense of ease and security was out of tune with reality. Look at verse 14. The Lord to them, for behold, I will raise up against you a nation, a house of, oh, excuse me, O house of Israel of Israel, declares the Lord the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you. From Hamath to the brook of Erbah. The destruction wrought by this nation would be so, so severe that, that the people would be afraid to mention the name the name of the Lord. Look at verse ten. It says, and when one's relative, so this is after the, the, the destruction has taken place, the one who anoints him for burial shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there anyone still with you? So the destruction is going to be so severe that if one relative finds that another relative is dead inside of a house and he goes to get the body, he's going to say, is there anybody else he- here? Because right? judging the look of things, probably not. The, the destruction has been so swift, severe. Is there anybody here with you? Anybody at all? And the, and the person will respond and say, say no, and then they will continue and say S- silence. Silence we must not mention the name of the Lord. What this is saying is that God's judgment, his ju- justice is going to be so swift, so severe, so complete that the, that the people who are left, le- left in the land will be terrified. They will, will feel like, man, if, if I say Yahweh, perhaps I will rouse his anger once ag- again. This is where that, that, that whole fear aspect comes into play. God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, God is patient, God is kind. God is a God of wrath. God is so wrathful. And the kind of destruction he can bring on us is so severe that we must not lose that sense of fear, the fear of the Lord. Because that fear is the beginning of all wisdom. That fear is what leads us to constantly examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the Lord. That fear is what leads us to have the humility to confess our sins, to repent, and to ask God to forgive us and to help us so that we can get all the way home. Point number three. Final point, Israel's comfort. <clears throat> look, back, look back at verses four through seven. <clears throat> Here we see the Lord. Uh, Giving even the, given the details of their luxury and comfort, he says, "Woe to those who lie on, on of ivory!" Ivory is uh, is very highly valued. It was the same thing in, in the ancient Near East. So the fact that their house, houses we saw early in the book of Amos are covered with ivory, and now we see that they even their beds are covered with ivory. It's not like these people like. You know, our fr- fridge is, like, barely hanging on. The light doesn't doesn't work. The shelves are fa- falling apart. The ice makes... Like, a lot of stuff's going bad with our, fr- our fridge. I've been thinking about... And I have I'm telling you now. I've been thinking about getting, getting a new fridge, right? But I'm feeling, like, a tinge of guilt about it. But I'm like, ah, oh, you know, we don't explore we don't a lot of stuff. But maybe we can get a new fridge. That's not what the Lord is talking about here. He's not talking about people who are, like, on the fence about whether or not to get a brand new washer and dryer or a used set that, that works just as well right he's talking about a a kind of indulgence that that says ah let's buy a new car instead of a used car he's talking about listen everything about your life is indulgent not only is your house covered with ivory but your beds are covered with ivory and he says and you stretch yourselves out on your your couches not just that you're laying there it's that like your whole life is, is you just just constantly laid out on the couch okay okay bonbons what the ancient Near Eastern version of that is. And you, and you eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. This is not a, a, a you know, this is not God taking a vegan stance, okay? This, what's, what's happening here is that meat was a luxury in the ancient Near East. And he's saying, hey, hey you're just kind of constantly taking advantage of lux- luxuries that other people don't, don't have, okay? And this is just part of your life. And then he said, who, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, like David and vent for the instruments of music, uh, again, again. This is not God doesn't have anything against music. He, music, he doesn't have anything against singing. What he's saying is, like, you just, just sit around the house all day doing nothing. You know, you're just a bum. You're like the guy who refuses to get a job, lives at home in his mom's ba- basement, and just says that he's going to make it in a band one day. You're not doing anything. You're just you're, just, you're living uh, a lazy life playing your guitar. Many us uh, who drink wine in bowls. Obviously, wine would have been in c- cups, uh, and it would have been not stored around the house, but they drink so much of it that they would rather just have it readily available, so they put it put that they can just scoop the wine out with their cup, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, okay? So that's what's happening there. They are living in extreme comfort. Now listen, what, what, what I, don't, I don't want to take away from this text is that God is opposed to comfort, or that God is opposed to wealth. Wealth is amoral. It's it's neither good nor bad, inherently, right? In the same way that poverty is neither good nor bad. I think what we we see in this is that comfort is less the cause of sin as as it is evidence of sin. So let let me explain. Go to verse six. It says, Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So the point here is not that the people are living in, in uh, extravagance or luxury, although that could be sinful, but we later see, see uh, uh, King David and King Solomon living in uh, extravagance and luxury, and it doesn't see the Lord has any for them over that. What, 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 what's wrong here is, is that they're living in extravagance and luxury and comfort when they be covered in sackcloth and ashes. ashes. He, he says at the end of six, you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph is again just the uh, representative name for the nation of Israel. He said, "Listen, Israel is about to be destroyed. You, you guys need to be up and about, moving, doing something. You should be trying to stop this. this. You should grieve, but instead, you're living lives of li- li- luxury. Your your life physically is is out of tune. With your reality spiritually." This is pretty much how most, of, most Americans live. Right? The day of justice is not far from any of them. It's going to come, going to come fairly quickly. And yet they just they continue to live lives of luxury and comfort. Lives that are completely out of tune with the spiritual reality of the, this world. Even in the church, we feel, we feel the pull of the, the world on us, calling us to live in line. To, uh, me, to live, live that are not, not in line with spiritual realities. You know? You know? The world has to tell, tell us to spend our money, to use our time, to use our, our, our talents on a whole bunch of stuff that really has, has no value in light of the coming day of judgment, in light, light of the day of the <laughs> One pastor helpfully illustrates this tendency by, by talking about wartime living. He says that most of us live our lives as if we're on a cruise ship. He says that we're on this cruise ship which is designed for us to experience the maximum amount of pleasure and entertainment before we get to heaven. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says we are actually on a battleship because we are at war. We're not on a cruise to Cozumel to go buy some jewelry at a discount price. We're at war and we need to live like it. The way we use our time, our talent, and our tr- treasure needs to be in line with the spiritual reality of, the, of these last days. Now, the people of Israel, they're reclining in comfort when they should be wallowing in sorrow. And we are in danger of making that mistake. And one of the reasons why we can do it is because we are so, so affluent. We have the money. We have the resource to be able to put far away the d- day of judgment. As Americans, we don't have to think about it if we, we don't want to. Even the poorest person in this room lives, lives a life of resplendent luxury in light of the standards of wealth throughout history and even for billions of people all over the globe today. And because we live such comfortable lives, we don't, don't have to think about judgment if we don't want to. We don't have to think about judgment. We can push all very far away. It's one of the reasons why in so many churches, nobody ever talks about hell or wrath or justice we feel comfortable in our middle-class lives, parking our middle-class cars in the very nice lots and in our very nice buildings, coming dressed in our very nice clothes, having very conversations about stuff. That really doesn't give us any kind of queast or uneasiness. And we can afford to do that. Talk to our brothers and sisters in North Korea or China or Iran or in Kenya. They can't afford to do that. They think much about the last day. And they do so looking forward to that day. And they think about it so much, much because... They kind of have to, and we think about it so little, so little because we can But I want to say what, what I think uh, every drug addict has come to know at a intuitive level: uh, all forms of escapism are just temporary, right? You know, you know that one hit, that one high that makes you feel good. Now that you think, "Oh man, thank God, I don't have to with all the crap up in my life now." Well, guess what? That high is going to go. Away. And then you're gonna need more and more and, more, and in that's an to way. And pretty soon you're gonna be left with nothing but the plain, plain acts of reality. And the same thing is true for us, brothers and sisters. One day, all the stuff that, that allows us to not think about the last day, it's gonna and the last day will be here. And we'll see that all that atheism was only temporary. I think one of the most valuable things that happened every Sunday in the life of this church that we are reminded about the truth of our condition we peel back the curtains of our modern American existence and we get another glimpse of our actual spiritual state. And part of that, part of that experience on Sunday morning needs to at least sometimes be a call for us to, to examine ourselves to, to see if we are living in line with that, that reality. And as we walk through the book of Amos, apparently the Lord wants to ask ourselves that every single week for a couple of months at a time question is are we going to be honest with ourselves when we do ask? and if we find answers that we find in our if we find answers in our lives that are not according to what God desires for our lives are we actually going to, to change are we actually going to sacrifice so that we can live in line with our spiritual realities or are we going to be the kind of people that James warns against hearers of the word only but not doers probably a good place for us to close Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, help us to have a, a joyful self examination as a church. Help us in live our lives, individually and corporately, and to, to with hearts full of uh, gladness and thankfulness towards you, uh, examine and be willing to, uh, uh, to, to deal honestly with what we may find there. Lord, we're by your Spirit. Uh, to be able to live live, live lives and change, help us to not be like people of Israel. Help us to be like Jesus. In His name, we pray. Amen.